Welcome to the Disney Parks Podcast with your hosts, Tony Castlenova from DisneyByTheNumbers.com and Parkhopper John from WDWParkhoppers.com. Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast at all times and get ready for the Disney Parks Podcast. And now, the Disney Parks Podcast infotainment segment. Well, good evening, everybody. We have got a a stellar show. We've been so, we're so excited that we have this guest tonight. We've been trying to get Ron on for a while now. We've been very excited that he agreed. Uh, Ron Logan is the former executive vice president, executive producer for Walt Disney World Entertainment. He's responsible for creating, casting, and producing all live entertainment products for the Walt Disney Company, including the Disneyland Resort and the Walt Disney World Resort. Tokyo Disney Resort, Disneyland Paris, oh my gosh, the Disney Institute, Disney Business Productions, the Disney Cruise Line, Disney Entertainment Productions, and Walt Disney Entertainment Worldwide. Ron was also the founder of Disney Theatrical Productions, which produced Disney's Beauty and the Beast, a new musical on Broadway and around the world. And on October 10th of 2007, Ron was honored at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, with the Disney Legends Award for Parks and resorts. This prestigious award is presented to individuals who've made a significant impact on the Walt Disney Company over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, we're humbly so proud and excited to welcome Ron Logan to the show. Good evening, Ron. Evening. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Doing great. I uh, would like to ask everybody, Ron, how their uh, journey with Disney started. So how did your dur- uh, journey with Disney begin? Well, you know, Disneyland opened in 1955, and in 1958, they had a, um, a thing where they asked the UCLA band, marching band, uh, for trumpet players to come down and be part of the Christmas play they were going to put on, and um, to play fanfare trumpet. So I was among that uh, those guys. The UCLA band at that time was all guys, which uh, it's kind of amazing. But we went down there, and that was my first experience in 1958 to be in the very first Christmas parade that uh, they did. And, of course, the Walt Disney World and Disneyland and really all the Disney parks that celebrate Christmas uh, do those kind of things with the Toy Soldier Band, which is, you know came out of Babes of Toyland, that concept. Uh, and then from there, I did the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympic Games as a fan for a trumpet player. Uh, because one of the trumpet players, they had to go up uh, and actually lead the group, stepped off the bus and broke his ankle. So I got a call at my house. Would I come up for two weeks? Um, I was in my senior year at UCLA. I thought, well, I'd have to be gone for two weeks in my last semester. So maybe I shouldn't do it, but crazy me. I said, well, I'll do it. So I went up there and got that experience at Squaw Valley, which was really amazing in itself, and uh, that was the beginning of a relationship I had with Disney directly from there on until, actually, until now. Oh, wow. So it's time ago. Yeah. So uh, I can't imagine what it's like marching down Main Street Disneyland or Disney World even with that costume on and then playing a trumpet. 
Yeah, it was difficult because uh, when you play trumpet, you buzz mm. with your lips. That's what you do. And when you play a trumpet where you can hear the sound uh, from the bell, which is very long, and a fanfare trumpet, and a fanfare trumpet is built so you can put a banner on it. Mm. It's kind of thing in old movies. But when you put the head on for the costume, the mouthpiece and the trumpet has to actually protrude into the head, into your mouth. And the interesting thing is, all you hear inside that head is the buzz. You don't hear the sound of the trumpet. <laughs> wow. Then uh, everybody else hears the sound of the trumpet on the outside. So that's a, you got to get used to that because it's an amazing uh, phenomenon when it comes to that. But uh, we had very good trumpet players through the years uh, yeah. that could do yeah. that because trumpet, trumpet was a very popular instrument when I grew up in California in those days because of the marching bands in Los Angeles and etc. So uh, it was a great experience and a great discipline to do it. And, uh, of course, with all guys, it became a, a challenge physically that we can do it kind of thing, you know, the rah-rah, right. kumbaya concept. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was a great start. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a former marching band drummer. I totally know what you're talking about with the trumpet player. Uh, you know the trumpet player handshake is high. I can play higher and longer than you. <laughs> so I totally get that. Well, and I, I really prided myself in those days. I was a pretty good trumpet player. And I could play loud and long and <clears throat> uh, very physical in those days. So I really enjoyed it. And uh, there were a lot of things that, that Walt Disney did in those days to announce things, and fanfare trumpets were perfect. Right. So we had a kind of a standard group that... Uh, that we used, and then later we added the other brass to it, and uh, different kinds of parades. So that's how it all started. So after you after you did your initial two weeks, what what was next for you? Well, I you know I was in the entertainment business as a trumpet player, musician. I uh, graduated from UCLA, uh, started teaching school, uh, taught high school. Uh, in Los Angeles County, a place called James Monroe High School. It was a fantastic high school. And then I went on there to, uh, from there I went, got my master's degree and then went to Long Beach City College where I was for 12 years. Um, did all kinds of jazz groups and marching bands and orchestra and all that stuff as a conductor. But at the same time, my relationship with Disney uh, gave me work. They would hire me to come in and do special projects and always the parade at Christmas time and I would you know, find other musicians who would come in and do it, and uh, really got to know Disney and love Disney and the the, the uh, values that they they had and what they did. And it didn't pay great, but it was the experience itself, which is something you really look forward to. And I did it for many, many years, and then I decided finally to go to work for Disney full time when I was 33 years old, and uh, I I'd done. Uh, summer stints at Disney World and Disneyland, starting a thing called the All-American College Marching Band. And we had musicians from all over the United States who would come to the uh, summertime and do a, uh, you know, uh, the summer job as an internship kind of a thing. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed that experience. And then finally, when Disney made me an offer to go to Disney World, as music director and conduct that band, uh, I, I jumped at it. And then from then on, 
I stayed with Disney because I uh, got promoted from that job uh, to go back to California to Disneyland to run the entertainment there. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went back as a vice president to run the entertainment at Walt Disney World. So it was a, it was a succession, the evolutionary kind of a thing, uh, which my family and I all embraced because my uh, my two daughters uh, performed at Disneyland and the bands in mm-hmm. um, uh, really loved it too. We got a lot of great experience from that. So that's how that really all started. Wow. And then it just kind of kept going. And before I knew it, I'd been there 27 years and did all hmm. the stuff I was, uh, had the opportunity to produce. Yeah. And, and the, the, the things that you were a part of still ripple through the, the, the world of Disney, but, but the world in general, like the, the, the all American band thing. I remember watching that when I was a kid. And one that's one of the things that spurred me on to be a drummer. It's like, well, they can do, I can do that. I yeah. watched that stuff and was inspired by that. So, so. Well, we had a deal with the union. Uh, kind of Bob Yanni was my mentor through all those Disney days, who ran Disney Entertainment and died tragically, tra- tragically as Lou Gehrig disease when he was in his 50s. Mm. Um, was a friend of a guy named Petrillo who ran the union in New York, the uh, musician's union. And I went with him, and we made a deal to do an apprentice program where musicians from schools uh, could perform for 75% of scale. Mm-hmm. And, and and that was a value to the parks, and so they would uh, do these programs. I'd always have to have educational components to it, which I always wanted to do anyway. So that works. So we, we were able to go across the United States every year and, and put a orchestra at Epcot with uh, bands, at, you know, Disneyland and Walt Disney World, uh, eventually other places. We ended up using uh, uh, some of those groups in Europe, in Paris, because it was a great program, because of the, the youth of America and the great musicians uh, that we had in Los Angeles and other areas. Uh, and then the value of the industry embracing us which was really special and and that really happened because of disney's relationship to the industry like uh, we produced you know candlelight every year and candlelight we had great narrators and uh, and they would be stars that would come back and uh, perform with with this one that we wanted to get guys people like rock hudson and uh, oh my gosh just goes on and on and on Wow. Uh, but it all went hand in hand, and it was really an evolution. Which is why I talk to my classes when I I teach now at Rosen College, and I talk to my classes about all of that and how your career will be uh, keep rolling as long as you keep pushing it, and you you do a good job, and you, uh, you've seen a value, and you uh, you know you go with the flow and. Uh, you make things happen, and if you can do that and have the drive and determination to do that, uh, there's a great life there for you. Yeah, absolutely. So when yeah. you go into the creative process for something like a parade at a Disney park, could you kind of give us a, a backdoor sneak peek of what it goes into creating one of those, not just a, a, a epic experience, but something that's built to last for years and years and years, and in some cases... Years and years and years and years and years and years and years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's interesting because Walt Disney, because I talked to Walt four times in my life. He was what he, he was really what you think he was like. He was like a 
a father figure. Wow. And just very friendly guy, nice guy. I've been able to talk to him a few times. And um, he said many times, he never wanted to compete with the Rose Parade. Mm. He said, I, we don't want to be the Rose Parade. The praise he wanted to do were like he had done in Marceline, Missouri, when he uh, started his company, he and his brother Roy. And the parade would be up Main Street, around the hub and back. And if you needed more than one, you did four or five during the day. And you do the Christmas, that's really what it was. It was the fanfare trumpets, it was people uh, who were dressed like they were presents and, or bears or, or whatever, you know, we put in the parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as it evolved, people liked the Disney parades because they were so different. And the quality of them, I really sold it. Basically, the Disney parades, the difference with them, they will celebrate holidays, but they usually celebrate some theme. You know, animated films, um, mm. parades that I ended up doing, usually were used to advertise the film. It's very interesting to me that uh, Walt felt, and actually Michael Eisner felt, that it was very important to create stuff in the parks at the time they would release one of their animated feature films. It was usually tied to the animated film because that's what Disney was uh, most successful for. Uh, they had done other things like at live action too, but the, the, the animation parades were really the things they wanted to publicize. So with that, you have to have a story, uh, but you have to tell your story in basically in 20 minutes. Because mm. you, when you prayed, uh, you you provide to to the zones in the various parks and every park we had had different number of parade zones and what that meant that parade zone means you get the whole concept of the story if you're in that zone from the beginning to the end uh, you just didn't see the parade pass you by and then I kind of not understand the story so we would create these parades around those themes and then we would be extremely creative with them. Uh, so that what you saw was totally different. Now, they still had marching bands. At times, they still had other kinds of things, stars and cars, as Walt used to call it. Uh, <laughs> but the theme thing is really what took off. Mm. And they believe, which I really didn't ever believe, and I still don't believe, that we sold one ticket by doing a parade. But they felt it with the, that it did, so okay, that's what we do. And... Uh, we did all kinds of different parades because of the concept of trying to be different than somebody else. And that's uh, so Disney became known for the parades everywhere. You know, and uh, the parade is, I always talk in my classes, is the second best price per guest. Mm. If you want to spend money, you can imagine what the first one is. What do you think the first one is? Best price per guest thing you can do in a park. Gosh. I would probably say something like uh, dining or no. attractions. Fireworks. Fireworks. Fireworks are the least expensive thing you can do, price per guest. Wow. And mm. you can do one show that you take to all the people mm. in the parade. Right. You know, if you had 20,000 people in the park, your parade can entertain those 20,000 people. If you had to sit those people in a stage show, let's say your theater had, outdoor theater had, which Disney only said, we never hardly ever had indoor theaters, would have a thousand seats. Mm. If you had 20,000 people, theoretically you had to do 
20 shows a day, which mm-hmm. is very expensive. Mm-hmm. So parade, because it can parade through one of these zones in 20 minutes, was a great value. Right. And you could, we would use the parades, by the way, uh, to take care of long lines in other places because we would run the parade against, say, you know, Space Mountain open. Right. And when you went to the one price ticket, you know, people would line up all day long to do Space Mountain maybe 12 times. So we had to put people over there to entertain those lines so they had a good experience. But we found if we ran the parade against it, which would usually do like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, then people had to make a choice. Am I going to watch it again or am I going to watch the parade? And the parade always won in that regard. So it became a, a, a real tool that the operators could use uh, to to really insi- enhance the experience that the guest had. Right, right. Mm. Now, as the executive vice president of all this entertainment, did you or have to audition all the cast members for the different roles uh, in in getting everybody together for the parade? Uh, when when I first started mm-hmm. and started doing parades, I did that. I would go on auditions tour. Across the United States uh, to identify performers, mm. both for Disneyland and Disneyland, and um, I enjoy doing that. And mm. I, I might go to, let's say, Denton, Texas, uh, with no Texas State is that because they have great musicians there, and I might audition three hundred people in one weekend. Wow! And then you pick, and then you pick who you want, and then talk to them about coming, and then you. They have to get themselves to the parks. Mm. They get paid, and you do the rehearsal, and then you pay them that seventy-five percent scale. So, uh, so I really had the, the first-hand experience by doing that, and I learned how to manage people. I learned how to, you know to deal with issues. Uh, you know, if you have a bunch of college kids and basically college kids for summer, that there's issues that you have to deal with. Right. But it's always been pretty good at that, and I really enjoyed that. And uh, I still get, I'm still in contact with people who performed in those parades 30, 40 years ago. Oh, wow. That's Amazing. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the fan favorites uh, for, as far as parades goes, was uh, Spectral Magic. Um, so how does the idea of, hey, let's have a parade now at night, and we're just going to light up all these floats... And, you know, they'll have the daytime parade, but now we're going to have this awesome nighttime parade. How does that concept even come into somebody's head? Well, actually, the first one that did that was Bobbiani, who I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. Because they started the parades at Disneyland, <clears throat> and people liked the parades, and... um they decided to be open at night. They did they, the thing they started called Late Night at Disneyland. Hmm. It was Saturday night when they first started it. And at night, they they needed parades too because of the volume of guests that would be in there. And we started by lighting with spotlights, the spotlight operators, um, the parade route, which really wasn't a parade route, by the way. We, we didn't build parks with parade routes until much later. Right. We just used existing streets that were there. And and those lights cost a lot of money. So Bobbiani got the idea, well, let's do the Italian tradition of putting lights 
on barbed wire, which is like most of us do at Christmas time, you know, put our lights out and mm-hmm. and you go to the door and buy those lights and put it on it. And really, the uh, Main Street Electrical Parade was the very first one that did that. Right. And Fabiani and built one at Disneyland and uh, Disney World, and actually Don Dorsey, who still is the one who does the major shows at Disney through all these years, was actually a keyboard player playing a Moog synthesizer as a high school student. Right. And uh, Babiani bought a song called uh, Baroque Hoedown, mm-hmm. and that became the theme. And it sounded electronic because it was recorded on a Moog synthesizer. Right. Moog being M-O-O-G. So that became a great thing. So we had one at Disneyland, we had one at Disney World, we had one at Walt, and we had one in Tokyo, Disneyland. Yeah. And they, the ones in Disney World and Tokyo were much bigger than Disneyland because Disneyland uh, Main Street, which, which it was a primary route, uh, I don't know if you know, but it has a different scale in regard to the buildings. When you right. come into Disneyland Main Street, 8-8 scale for the first floor of the building, second floor of the building is only 5 inch. Right. So when you go to Disneyland Main Street, you feel like it's more quaint and small than Disney World is full size. So, um, so we had this parade, and we were having trouble in Paris because Paris, uh, you know, in the winter time, gets dark eleven o'clock in the morning. And my boss at that time, a, a, a marketing VP, uh, said, "We're going to send our parade from Florida to France." And by the way, they couldn't pay for it because it, mm. you know it was only the French government at that time. They didn't want to spend any money, so uh, actually everybody agreed. Well, that's a good thing to do, and I didn't want to do that because I thought I don't want to do that. This parade because the Disney World parade was really good, and they said well, we're going to do it. He said, but we'll give you money to create a new parade. Well, I hadn't created the light parades. You know, mm. I I was in them, but Bob Yanni had created them, so. I thought, wow, I'm going to get killed here. I may lose my job because when you take something that people love, which right. they did, take it away, you got a problem. But marketing had a concept that was really neat. It was called a last chance concept um, of making, really, a formula to make money. And what that said was, this advertising place is going to go away in August. So if you want to see it, come and see it. Well, yeah. that drew millions of people. And then, and then they come back again to see the new parade. So it was based upon making money of that parade going away. Right. Hmm. So they gave me, I think it was a budget around $12 uh, million. I think the first one, uh, electrical parade, was like $8 million. But so they gave me $12 million. And I, well, I didn't want to do it because I was like, God, I can't do this, you know. And so what we did, I got my staff together and I said, I do not want a new and improved Parade. This is when we were working on Spectro. Uh, I don't want a new and improved. I want something totally different. So I required my creative people in our in our processes of our brainstorming to come up with totally something totally different. So we introduced fiber optics. We had every kind of light bulb you could think of. Mm. Uh, in we had mirror balls that you put spotlights on. And uh, I changed the whole concept of what the parade was. Uh, picture the Main Street Electrical Parade and the float, uh, the mushroom that Alice in Wonderland is sitting on. All that is, if you look at it from the front side, from the back, all that is, as it comes down the street, is a mushroom lighted with Alice on top, talking to the public. Right. 
But uh, I'm going to change that. I want to make the, the floats in Spectral Magic a story from the front of the float. And then the second story, when, when you see the size of the float, when that float goes past you. And then the third story, when it goes down the street. Mm. And that was, a, that was really a successful concept that we came up with. And um, when we said the place would be much bigger, um, we also felt that we could do it because the industry said they could do it, and my team said we could do it with just nothing but fiber optics and not light, not light bulbs. Well, we found out that wasn't true. We found out the fiber optic uh, industry couldn't create the illumination uh, focus. I mean, in other words, I mean, the effect of the, the lights were not as good as the electric light bulbs. So mm. yeah. we ended up including that, too. Um, and boy, I thought it was going to get fired with that pretty because I just wasn't. It ended up being enormous. We we put trans, uh, transformation in it. We have a chatter Chernobog fruit where the when you go down the street as it's going down the street, the wings come out, and, uh, sort of like they do in the rose parade that you know Pomona College in California creates. These wonderful moving things, uh, and the prey got a, a lukewarm. You know, people liked it, people didn't like it, they missed the other one, but we at least survived it. But it made billions of dollars by last chance. Wow. So, and then the other thing, I didn't like the word, the name Spectral Magic. To me, it sounded like a skin disease. <laughs> I guess Spectral Magic, you know. But marketing named that. I and got a so case with Spectral Magics. <laughs> yeah, I got a case of Spectral Magic. But but then, then Disneyland would do the same thing. So we've created a parade that wasn't successful called Light Magic because mm. uh, it was overproduced. And those days I was running around the world doing things, so I didn't pay much attention to it, and my Disneyland people didn't either. So it didn't last but one summer, uh, <laughs> and then we replaced it. But then Tokyo wanted the same thing, and I said, I need a year and a half to produce something different. We'll do the Last Chance campaign, we're going to do something different. And that parade was the most expensive parade in the world. We, it cost $32 million. But that's a parade. It's one of the five things I always talk about that I'm most proud of. Hmm. It, it, just, it changed the whole industry of parades. I've never seen a parade ever come close to what that parade was. And that parade in Tokyo paid itself off in two years because the Japanese are fanatics about parades. Wow. Yeah. That's that, amazing. It was called, called Fandalusion, which was a great name. Yeah. Not spectral magic kind of thing. You know? <laughs> uh, I have a question. Uh, I'm friends with Derek Johnson, and we've talked to him a lot about, you know, bringing in regeneration and the 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 singing in yeah. the Magic Kingdom area, and then the the creation of the Voices of Liberty. Were you involved with the creation of the four court stage at the Magic Kingdom Park? Yeah, and by the way, Derek Johnson is one of my best friends forever. He just, I still talk to him all the time. He he does the thing called points to ponder mm-hmm. that he sends people. Um, you guys ought to investigate that, talk to him about it. And he sends me every day on, on my email points to ponder, and they're they're funny funny anecdotes, and they're about life. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and I actually use them in a newsletter I do for a program I'm coordinating. Uh, 
based on the entertainment management at uh, Rosen College, and, and Derek is just tremendous. So yes, I went when I went back full time to Disney World. Um, that's when we did the full time thing with the Voices of Liberty. Uh, Bob Biani asked me to consider doing this choral thing at the American Venture. And, you know, I thought, ah, oh, choral thing, you know, I don't know about, don't know about choirs. But then I heard what Derek did with Regeneration, and it, it's a whole different kind of thing. It is, I mean, your your hair yeah. <laughs> stands up. Yeah. And, and it requires extremely good talent. Mm-hmm. We said Liberty, we would audition every year for new singers. And we'd get about a thousand people trying to audition just to be in the Voice of Liberty. And some, you know, during the bicentennial year, we had double groups. And we'd get people who were just absolutely phenomenal. And Derek would write those arrangements, which is really interesting enough jazz scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they, but, but he's just so good at it. And he's still doing it. I, yeah. I think he's 86 years old or something. He's still doing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So he had choir practice tonight. That. Yeah, he anyway, just so has that. You know, it's a. It was always voted by our guests from whenever we do a survey, which we didn't do too often, but we we did it as a, as the most exciting thing in any of our parks. Period. That yeah. group, and that's why that group's been there so long. You know. So so Derek. you have this great idea with this vocal group, and who actually comes up with the idea of let's build a permanent stage and put a show on at the forecourt stage. Was that was that your decision? Was that someone else's yeah. decision? Well, I, my, my team and I, I mean, we, we were responsible for all live entertainment, so we would we would respond to anybody who wanted us to do anything, you know, as long as they gave us a budget to do it. Or we would have our own <coughs> concepts of what to do. That's really how uh, Broadway started, you know, with Reading the Beast, when I uh, got into that because I saw the early... Uh, animation for that film, and I thought, my God, this thing is could be a Broadway show. And I had no experience in Broadway shows other than conducting them, you know, for college and stuff. But I just felt the story is a grabber, and uh, nobody believed me. I mean, it was like Jeffrey Katzenberg said, "No, that's thank you for for saying that because it, it was, you know, his film." But I thought this has really got legs, but. Michael Eisner had grown up in New York, you know, and he he was always he always said to me, "It's too bad that the New Yorkers don't like theme parks." <laughs> you know, at least that's his feeling because you grew up on Fifth Avenue, you know, and right. his family never went to the parks. Or at least he did. He, he would say they never did, but uh, that's how that all started of uh, me bugging to death because my really strong suit is. Uh, I have a thing I say, when I have an idea, man, I will approach you with a smile, with an olive branch, or I'll approach you with a machete with a smile. we got to do this. And once you get to a place where people trust your instincts, mm. you can really make things happen. That's really what happened with all of that. Um, and then, actually, Beauty and the Beast ended up getting going because of an article that Frank Rich put in the the New York Times uh, in 1991 about the score of the music that Alan Menken had done for the movie, I'm Beating the Beast. 
of saying, too bad, this music's not on Broadway because it just knocked him out. Well, that's when Eisner called me and said, what was this idea you had? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, from there on, we we begat, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Aida, and Lion King, and, and then the rest of it, you know, as it goes. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of what we ended up doing, we did because we really forced the issue, and we mm-hmm. were demanding with it because we were expected to come up with ideas. But if we're going to come up with ideas, you got to listen to us. And a lot of times the operators didn't want to listen to us because it would cost them money. Eisner would expect the operators to pay for these shows, right. millions of dollars. And uh, and I tell you something, I did. I used to carry Michael Eisner's private phone number on the back of a card in my suit, my suit coat. <laughs> and around the world, if anybody questioned why we're doing something, you know, and, and Eisner was involved in it, I, I'd say, well, you want to call him? Here's the number. <laughs> nobody, ever, nobody ever took me up on it. <laughs> I love my way through the whole thing. Wow. wow. What, uh, what made, uh, I guess, you and maybe Michael and the Disney company decide on like Beauty and the Beast and why not maybe an older classic uh, animated film? Because Beauty and the Beast was there. Mm. And, you know, Beauty and the Beast was nominated as the best movie of the year. Not as an animated best movie. It was the best movie of the year. Right. And, uh, and it was so successful as a movie, that's what forced the issue. Mm. Uh, we had done a version of that in the park, his 20-minute versions, both at Disneyland and Disney World, and I had two different teams that worked on those shows. And I actually took the team that I had at Disneyland, uh, Rob Roth and uh, Matt and uh, Conover and, uh, who's my said guy, uh, going blank here, but to, that I had under contract to do shows for me because we were doing shows at the uh, Queen Mary in Long Beach by that time because we Disney owned that for a period of time. Hmm. And they were contract guys who had some Broadway experience. So the show we had done at Disneyland was very theatrical and we actually had a stage there that had a fly loft and all that kind of stuff. And that show became the, the pattern for, or the template for what we ended up doing. And I... Uh, Eisner said, well, come to Aspen and present your concept, uh, because Frank Rich had said what he said about the music. And so we added a couple of guys working on magic, and we went to Aspen um, in August of of that year, actually, 91. And um, we sold it. I mean, we just flat sold it. And from there on, it's history. And I remember uh, Eisner was saying, well, what, what's the budget you want? I said, I have no idea. I know New York's expensive, uh, but uh, in our park shows, cost about $3 million each. Right. You know, yeah. park stage shows. So I said, well, uh, I don't know, $10 million. So, okay, you got $10 million. So I didn't have to have backer auditions or, any, you know, and money from backers or anything. Uh, you got $10 million. He said, don't spend one dime over $10 million. Wow. And when it came to a day when he still wanted to make some more changes to what we were doing, I actually said, we can't. Well, she said, what do you mean we can't? I said, because you told me you can go over budget, $10 million, and we're there. And I made him sign a blank sheet of paper, which I still have. 
They said it's okay to go over $10 million. Wow. <laughs> well, guess how much money Beauty and the Beast has made to date, because it's still out there, so planned. What do you think? How much money do you think? I'm going to say like uh, $500 million. $4 billion. Holy mackerel. I was way off. It's got to be in the billions. Wow. Wow. With a B. So, and it was, done, it was done in eight languages in 13 countries. Wow. Uh, it, was just, uh, it was just done recently in Shanghai when my team, right. my old team, right. went and did it in Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Shanghai yeah. Resort. What's the, what's the bigger challenge, creating an in-park uh, mega entertainment like a parade or putting a, per, putting a production on Broadway? Well, it, it varies. I mean, it depends on what the result has to be. When we produced entertainment, we produced entertainment to make a profit. It wasn't produced for the arts. Mm. You know, it wasn't that, well, let's be creative artists and have our own company and do this. It was created to make money. Right. That's why our shows a lot of time was smulsy. You know, it wasn't extremely artistic at, at times. But we gave the audience what they wanted and what they clamored for. And you always said, exceed your expectation. The thing Beauty and the Beast did for Broadway, at the time it came out on Broadway, all the shows that were downers, you know, shows like Rent, and where people are dying, and all about AIDS. And, uh, I remember the show that beat us out on the uh, Tony Awards, because we were nominated for nine Tony Awards, who won one for costuming, a show called Passion that Sondheim had, mm-hmm. had uh, <laughs> done. One show is the best new show and only lasted six months wow. and when I, I i said i wonder i wonder why this thing you know was, was so acclaimed and i went and saw it and i found out why that whole show opened with with a nude couple in bed totally wow. nude wow. so people went to that show really not for the music because the music wasn't really good that he had done for that it was about a spinster who had a terrible life and she dies well that's a Okay. Our show was totally different than that. Our our show, we had dads taking their daughters to Broadway. You know, hmm. we had a we had a a formula of sixty five percent of the house, which was our budget. Uh, you know, we do eight shows a week, and we had to make sixty five percent of the house. We never ever, in the whole run, we were on Broadway for thirteen years, never ever got less than seventy two percent. So we made profit from the very first day. And they're still making profit. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. So it $10 million. It, it is crazy. I mean, it's like people don't believe you when you say this. You know, I wrote yeah. a book about this stuff. And people, really? Mm. Yeah, that's a true story. Yeah. They don't believe mm. you, but it is. It is a true story. Right. Mm. Right. Well, a $10 million investment paid off. It was a good gamble. <laughs> yeah. I have, a, I have a show at Epcot now, uh, Reflections of Earth. Right. Which for the millennium, which in 2020 will have been there uh, 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Because it's only going to be for the millennium. We're going to run a couple of years. Well, it's been there 20. I got on paper from the finance people $8 million value every year. Wow. That. That Lagoon show has made, will have made in 2020, $160 million profit. 
Right. Huh. <laughs> Fireworks, man. <laughs> yeah. So if if you want if you want to be successful, you got to be successful knowing how to make money. And my team knew how to produce the stuff. And many times we we create the the technology ourselves. Mm. When I retired, I, I kept track of how many patents we had. We had 127 patents. Wow. We're like the airline's fireworks system we use at Disney. Yeah. Which was, well, this Imagineering that was put together. Well, nobody can compete with you because nobody can do that. Yeah. Because we own the technology of doing it. Yeah. Um, we, we're coming up on our times, but we want to, we want to, a couple more questions. And I wanted to ask, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your history with the Disney Cruise Line? Because that's not only is it a floating hotel, it also has massive amounts of entertainment, including shows, Broadway style yeah. shows on the ships. That had to be an incredible challenge to overcome. Well, uh, a guy named Wing Chow, who I deal with all the time, is he was a uh, vice president at Disney and worked with Michael Eisner on the idea of Cruise Line. In the very beginning, we we talked to Norwegian Cruise Lines to get involved with them and have them use the Norwegian Cruise Lines, and we put our shows on it. And we actually we actually took the uh, the Norway ship, and we took we brought ninety performers on there and did all kinds of shows um, to convince them to come to Cape Canaveral. A guy named Bruce Nuremberg was uh, with with them at that time. Mm. Well, Bruce, they they decided not to, but Bruce Nuremberg then uh, got a hold of a ship they called the Re- Big Red Boat, and they started doing our shows on on that. Yep. And we had characters on it and all that, but Eisner didn't like the way the characters were being used, I didn't either, uh, because it, the quality wasn't there, because of the you know the philosophy that goes behind keeping the brand fresh and all that. Mm-hmm. So Eisner said, we're going to be in the cruise business because it was successful, because the big red boat was successful because of us. So he said, let's build our own. And he was, the amazing thing about him, he would just do that. <laughs> and so we had the magic and the wonder, and I was involved in the whole that. And those, those ships were built around stage, man. I mean, the stage was the reason for the existence of that ship. Wow. And we had great, you know, the Walt Disney Theater, uh, we have a theater here in Orlando called the Old Disney Theater for the Dr. Phillips yeah. Art Center. Right. It, it's it's really very similar to uh, what we had on that cruise cruise ship, and it's quality quality stuff. Yeah, uh, doing shows on water is totally different. Um, you know, sometimes we do shows and be chased by a hurricane. I remember the first time we did we did. Uh, Shows you'd have dancers flying off the stage and stuff like that. So we had to learn how to do it, but we were very successful at it, and it became another thing that we decided to expand, and it, it worked again because it made money, and the the formula worked. You, you get the formula, you tweak it, keep going. Well, that's what's happened now. I mean, it's just it's just phenomenal what's happened with that, and it was a fun experience. You know, the one thing I'll just tell you, period. The, when people ask me about what we did, it was just fun. Right. It was frightening. It was frightening, but it was fun because you went to work every day creating something new. Yeah. You know, I used to have a saying, we never did the same thing once. Right. Wow. You know, <laughs> of, and, 
And if you don't like that challenge, don't come to work for us. That's why we had so many talented people wanting to come in and work for us. We had people who could be classified as being nuts. (laughs) 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 Good doctor. But you don't know how to manage that, you know. Uh, I'm very proud of another thing. Uh, If I looked at my whole staff, my key staff, Mm. probably Mm. 60% of that staff are are gay, you know. And you have to know how to manage that, too. Get get the respect that you want to get and deal with creative people. Uh, You know, creative people are different kinds of people. They need to be handled a certain way and uh, wrangled, we use the term in the industry. But it it was always a wonderful experience because of what you did. We never really felt we were in competition with anybody but us. Right. And that was great, too. And, and our audience proved that we were right in regard to what we talked about. And once you have a career like that, it's... It's just something you just look back at and say, oh, my gosh, you know, we didn't plan all this. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. happened. Yeah. But you don't do it without the support. You don't do it without the support of your guests. You don't do it without the support of key management people like Mike Eisner and Frank Wilson, Katzenberg, and really the whole industry out there. You know, the great thing about Disney guys is that everybody realizes the value of a Disney, period. Yeah. And you see it now in that world. I mean, the value of the Disney is why everybody's trusting us with their product, like like now 20th Century Fox and all these Marvel and all these things that Disney owns. The people want us to be involved in it because they know we know how to make it successful. Yeah. We're a value system. Right, right. Uh, I can't thank you enough. I mean, you have, uh, I think, an endless (laughs) uh, story that you can tell us about every show, every parade, every uh, facet of your uh, interesting career with the Disney Company. Um, but we really want to thank you, Ron, for taking the time and uh, coming on and talking to us. Well, you know, I love doing it because it's it's wonderful to have people interested. I'm doing a thing. You talk about promoting something. I'm doing a yeah. thing with Gift Kids World in Orlando right. on February 19th where they're selling tickets to uh, hear me come and talk. I'm going to talk about uh, Reflections of Earth because uh, they want me to talk about that. And the great thing is I have videos of a lot of rehearsal stuff that that we that I kept when I left Disney. Disney let me take that stuff with me. And I show it and I tell the stories. And the thing I love about it is I tell, I can tell the stories from the standpoint of being the truth because I was there. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And I love doing that. I mean, you guys, I'm sure, the same way. You get proud of what you do. Yep. And I'm sure your fans respect you. Well, that that makes you do everything you do as best as you can do it. And you don't mess around with it. You don't right. cheap, make it cheap. You don't, uh, you keep it what it needs to be. And, that, and you know, that's what I teach every day to my students. When I teach them, I say, be the best you can be, man. It's, you know, you all got talent of some sort or you wouldn't be here. So just... Develop that talent and trust yourself. Trust, trust mm. your instinct. Right. Yeah. And we'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, Ron, somebody wants to, uh, well, besides give the kids the world, uh, which is coming up in February 19th, and we'll post a link to that. Anything else, that, places that they might be able to find you? Well, I get I get involved in D23 all the time. Okay, good. Uh, they ask me, I put together different things at different times. 
because mm-hmm. I enjoy doing it. And um, I still get asked to do things because I have a company outside that I use too called Entertainment Arts Inc., Entertainment Arts Program Inc. And I still produce things. I'm working on things in Hong Kong and worked on several things in South Africa. And I enjoy that too because everybody loves Disney Worldwide. And the reputation gets you in the door. Right. And then you work on other different kinds of things, you know. And then the great thing about my my team that I had, many of them are still in Orlando. So we'll get together and do different kinds of projects. Right. Uh, brainstorm things. And that's exciting, too, because you, when you're together like that, even though you, you're retired, you're not really retired. You know, everything you've done is always in the bag you have, and you carry it with you. Yeah. And if people are interested, they stay interested. Right. And, yeah. and your fans are really important to you. you got to do what they want you to do. That's right. Yeah. But do it in a way that you're pleased. You don't want to do it in a way that you're not happy about. Right. And if, if you got something new you want to try... Just sell them on it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's words of advice. Really, I enjoy this. You ask good questions. Uh, you make me think about things which I, I love, and sometimes things come to mind that I, that I haven't remembered in a long time because of the questions you ask. So I really enjoy doing. So thanks for asking me. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it, and we'll uh, you know link up to give kids to the world uh, when the show comes out. And uh, once again, we really want to say thank you for uh, coming on and. Talking to us. You got it. Thanks, guys. Thanks. The Disney Parks Podcast is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. All Disney Parks, attractions, lands, shows, event names, etc., are registered trademarks of the Walt Disney Company. Like a boat out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through.